Series 4 was recorded in autumn 2019. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome back to the fourth series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast with me, Simon Stevens. I first came across the writing of Christopher Hampton by accident. In the early 90s, I was flicking through the television. This was in the five-channel days when television was something that was possible to feasibly flick through. I stumbled upon the beautiful English actor Jeremy Irons talking directly to the camera in what appeared to be the adaptation of a stage play. He appeared to be talking with wit and grief alike and excavating the remarkable world of Hollywood as a home for the exiles of the Second World War. I'd not seen anything like it on television before. I was transfixed. It was, I discovered, the television adaptation of Hampton's 1984 stage play, Tales from Hollywood, a sharp and tender exploration of that world and the lives of Bertolt Brecht and his Austrian peer Erdogan von Horvath as they made sense of their position within it. From that point onward, I paid particular attention to the name of Christopher Hampton wherever it appeared. I quickly discovered that it is a name that has appeared in many, many, many places. Born in 1946, Hampton's family moved around the world in his childhood. His father's work for the cable and wireless company took him and his family from Alexandria to Zanzibar. After what appears to have been a dramatic return to England, Hampton settled into a more conventional schooling at Lansing School in West Sussex, where he was a contemporary of David Hare and won house colours in boxing. He read German and French at New College in Oxford, where he wrote and saw produced his first stage play, When Did You Last See My Mother? A tender exploration of the vitality of a gay love that was still illegal at the time, he sent his play to legendary theatre agent Peggy Ramsey. Ramsey loved it. She took the 19-year-old writer onto her books, sent the play to the Royal Court Artistic Director Bill Gaskell, who produced it at the court before transferring it to the Comedy Theatre in the West End in 1966. England won the World Cup and Hampton became the youngest playwright to have a play produced in the commercial theatre in the modern age. Between 1968 and 1970, he was the resident dramatist and literary manager here at the Royal Court. Through the course of the 70s, he wrote with great elegance and success for the theatre. His work for the court is, to my mind, defined by a startling diversity of theme and world. Total Eclipse from 1967 is an exploration of the creative and sexual relationship between the great French symbolist poets Arthur Rimbaud and Paul Verlaine. The Philanthropist from 1968, a response to Molière's misanthrope, ran the West End for four years, won the Evening Standard Award for Best Comedy and transferred to Broadway. 1973, Savages dramatised the brutal decimation of the Sintas tribe by the Brazilian dictatorship in the previous decade. Treats, inspired by his work on the adaptation of Ibsen's Doll's House, opened in 1974. After a 30-year break from the court, Hampton's version of Chekhov's Siegel was directed by the then artistic director Ian Rickson in 2006 as part of the theatre's 50th anniversary season. Kristen Scott Thomas played Hampton's Arcadena in a beautiful production that transferred to the West End and Broadway. It is fair to say that he wasn't twiddling his thumbs in the intervening decades. 
He's written widely for cinema, with over 20 credits to his name. He's thrived in the Hollywood he dramatised with such guile. He was nominated for an Academy Award for Atonement in 2007 after winning that most celebrated award in 1988 for his screen version of his stage play of Dangerous Liaisons. He's collaborated with, amongst others, Andrew Lloyd Webber on musicals and Philip Glass on opera. He's written beautiful versions of plays by Ibsen and Chekhov, as well as more recently and with immense success Yasmina Riza and Florian Zeller. However wide his range and diverse his interests, Hampton's writing always has a clarity and poise and a formal exploration that moves me. It seems perverse to say of an Oscar-winning screenwriter and a writer of several successful shows in the West End and Broadway that I think he's underrated, but I do. He reminds me of his hero Erden von Horvath, a peer of the more bombastic Brecht, and Horvath has a formal exploration and a human nuance that I find more complicated and satisfying than Brecht. I find Hampton's writing, its uncertainty and its humanity, its formal reach and quiet daring to be similarly complicated and similarly rewarding. He is a writer I have immense respect for. Christopher Hampton, welcome to the Royal Court. Well, thank you, Simon. That was, that was great. I enjoyed that. <laughs> Very glad. We aim to please. The um, and I always start these conversations with the same question, and uh, it's been a year since our last series. I've been mulling on it and thinking about it, and I've decided to keep the same question, which was, um, when was the first time that you went to the theatre? Oh, uh, the, well, I don't know about going to the theatre. The first play I ever saw, weirdly enough, was An Enemy of the People by Ibsen, which was the school play at my school in Alexandria in Egypt, where I was a a pupil at a uh, place called the British Boys School, uh, and that's also the uh, the school where we had two pe two periods a week of drama, where we were encouraged to was the, each form was split up into four or five groups, and we were encouraged to write plays. So I started writing plays when I was about eight. Yeah, this is primary school. Yeah. You're doing Enemy of the People by Ibsen at primary school. Well, it, it was it was a school that went through from seven to sixteen or seventeen, right. so it was it was it, it, I, I was in the junior school, but the senior school was doing uh, was doing Enemy of the People, and uh, I just remember I remember it so vividly because I I uh, I was very excited by the fact that in the famous Act Four of Enemy of the People, which mm. I came to know very well because I eventually did a version of it yeah. for the National Theatre. Um, a man who was uh, an older boy who was dressed rather strangely, I thought, suddenly rose to his feet in Act 4 and started shouting at, uh, <laughs> at, the, at the boy playing Dr Stockman because that was how the director had organised it. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I became extremely excited about the possibilities of the theatre. Most people, when they answer that question, talk about going to the pantomime. I think that's quite a bracing difference. <laughs> uh, well, actually, do you know, I, before I came to the, to work at the Royal Court, I'd seen remarkably few plays. Right. Because my, 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 my dad loved the cinema. Okay. So we saw just about every American movie of the 50s. Right. Because he loved, he just, we went two or three times a week in Alexandria. And there was no sort of uh, a certificate or any of those things, so so we saw everything. So I remember seeing a streetcar named Desire when I was about nine. So, wow. You know the Marlon Brando film. We just yeah. we just kept we just get uh, we just went whatever was on. Yeah. 
but we never went to the theatre. Um, and were you when you were when you were asked to to write plays as a, in your, in your primary school years in Alexandria? Was that something you talked to with? Yeah, energy? I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Uh, um, and then and I actually when I we, we had to we had to leave Egypt. I read about this as I you alluded to uh, in the Suez Crisis. <laughs> what happened? Well, uh, you know, Anthony Eden went bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and Not the last British Prime Minister to do that. No, I always, I always think there are there are there are there are sort of three moments, recent moments in British history where where um, we've we've just taken leave of our senses because we have a delusion about our power or our yeah. influence in the world. So the first was the fall of Singapore, I think. Right. The, the second was the was Suez, the Suez, Suez crisis. crisis. The third, of course, is Brexit. Uh, uh, but it's every now and then. We go crazy, mm-hmm. and that's what uh, 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 we were living, you know, uh, in Egypt and uh, happy there. And we were told that we, ch- women and children, should be evacuated. And um, we'd sort of been through this before, so my parents were very kind of blasé about it. Right. And it, it turned out that it was quite serious, and so my mother, my bro- older brother, and I were. Literally on the last boat out of Suez, wow. out of Port Said before the before the Suez invasion, wow. uh, and and How old were you? I was ten, yeah. and, and we had to we took a launch out, and a, and an Australian liner stopped, and we went up the gangplank to because because <laughs> you know that was the the way it was. My dad stayed there, and his office was bombed by the RAF, which as a as a conventional middle-class Tory person shocked him very deeply. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, he was, was all right. Well, yeah, he was okay. Yeah. Uh, but the, I think the, uh, the the bomb hit the Presbyterian church next door and killed the verger who was in his 70s. Uh, um, but my, my, my dad was fine, mm. but he was very shocked yeah. by this behaviour. Mm. How... What was it like? Had you lived in England at all before before living in Alexandria? Only when we were in nineteen fifty two evacuated for the first time, right. which was what was called the Egyptian Revolution. Right. When uh, uh, a man called General Naguib, who was pretty soon succeeded by Nasser, mm. took uh, kicked out King Farouk and took over, mm. and at that point we were. We were evacuated, and um, that was why we say blasé in '56 because we'd been evacuated in '52 and nothing yeah. had happened. Yeah. Uh, but at that point, I spent six months at a primary school uh, near Plymouth, right? Um, where I I was very very suntanned, having lived my whole life, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and um, so I was startled on the first day of school. Everybody started making monkey noises when I arrived arrived in wow. the room. Um, oh so it doesn't surprise me when I can, when I see that happening on the football pitch, even to this day. Because, um, yeah. Yeah. How was it to come back as a ten-year-old? Uh, well, it was it was slightly it was slightly better. Mm. Um, uh, I, I went to a prep school that my yeah. dad had picked out with a pin, mm-hmm. literally. Really? A, yeah. Uh, which turned out to be on its last legs, but it was right. it was okay. But you um, didn't get to see Enemy of the People or or do two drama lessons a week. 
No, but I did. I did actually go on writing plays, and we we used to put them on in the dormitory uh, at the end of term. So you're writing regularly all the way through your adolescence. Yeah, man, was that a common thing? In, in, in well, no, it wasn't, and, and it was. Uh, I was very lucky because my I came from a house where there were, were no books. My, right. pa- my yeah, parents were very. They weren't readers. No, they were very keen on sports. Yeah. So they were always playing tennis or yeah. yachting or whatever it might be. <laughs> And uh, I would ask to be left behind with a library book. Oh, what did they make of that? Well, this was the thing that, that my, my dad was extremely tolerant about, about it. And when right. I said to him when I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11, I'd, I'd like to be a writer, instead of looking alarmed, he said, well, that's great. He said, you should keep going. Do it, do it. Um, so, um, so he was very encouraging. That's a lovely thing to have in a father, eh? Yeah. He... Um... And were the schools very different to come to just apart from uh, having to persist with your writing off your own steam? Was it a very different educational experience? Well, I, I did find uh, my prep school when I first came back. Uh, I did get into trouble because I, I, I sort of parroted what my dad said to me about Suez, and so oh. uh, I had to. I was. The headmaster called me up to his study and said, um, uh, 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 I, I know you don't know what you're saying, really, but, uh, you know, our, our boys are out there risking their lives and the things you've I've heard that you've been saying about this. <laughs> you're a 10 year old political dissident. Yeah. So. So. And as I, I in 52, I was beaten up in Egypt for being British. Um, it was it was quite a good political education, mm. one side and the other. Um, you know, when I got back to when I got back to England and uh, realised that you 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 had to be careful what you said at that particular time. And in uh, I'm guessing that Alexandria there was a greater kind of diversity of languages than in West Sussex as well. <laughs> I mean because as, as a writer who's who's explored language so fully all, and all so the cool. all the kids at yeah. my school I mean not me uh, yeah. but all the kids at my school could speak five languages they could all speak in Alexandria yeah they could yeah. all speak English French wow. Greek Italian and Arabic and the only problem was that they often forgot what language they were they'd started out in <laughs> would change in the middle of a sentence <laughs> baffle you um, but they, they, they really, they, it was the most cosmopolitan city. Uh, I mean, it, it, I've been back there a lot since mm. uh, um, uh, and seen it in various degrees of decay yeah. and resurgence. Yeah. But, but in, uh, in the 50s, Alexandria was one of the great cities of, of the Mediterranean. Yeah. And it was full of, of um, expatriates. Yeah. There was a, you know, there was a big Greek community. There was a Jewish community. There was a Maltese community, uh, and so, you know, my best friends were two Lebanese, a Finn, and an American. Wow. Um, so you had a lot of, yeah. you, you know, you had a lot of influence from all over the world, and a, and a lot of sort of feeling comfortable about speaking other languages. I always wonder the extent to which, in different for different in different ways and for different reasons, writers uh, 
are kind of estranged by experiences of travel or they're, they're, they're sent to somewhere where they've not been or they come back from somewhere and they see the world with a sense of dislocation. But I might be imposing that on no, you. I think, no, I think there's no, there's no question that it was a tremendously good uh, uh, upbringing for a, for a writer because yeah. you, you, you sort of were an outsider yeah. in one community and then you would come to, to as it were, the, the, the diametrically opposite community and be an outsider there as well. Mm. Mm. And it was so. It was very, very. Uh, uh, I mean, and and you kind of adapted your character to it in a way. I I think I made myself more 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 English than the English when I kind of right. worked out what was what it right. was to be English, <laughs> which came relatively late. I thought, oh, I see. That's what you do. You pretend you uh, pretend not to be too interested in this, or you that's pretend that you're <laughs> enthusiastic about that. You know. Uh, <laughs> And, and lay low. The, uh, I was going to ask you, and it might be related to that, about why you were writing plays rather than writing poetry or writing prose, or or were you writing in many different forms at that age? I wrote quite a lot of poetry, I yeah. think, and I did write a novel when I was in my teens. That's great. I like teenage novelists. Um, and it was a big, big, you know, big, big job. But yeah. I, but but I sent it to every publisher in London, and they all turned it down. And, you still have it? And no, there's a good story about that. It's Peggy Ramsey, <laughs> Margaret Ramsey, my great agent. <laughs> she had she had the copy because it was handwritten, so oh. I gave it to her to read. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, I don't know, twenty years later, there was a fire in her office, <laughs> and uh, so I rang up to commiserate because she'd lost a lot of archive and so on. Yeah. I said, "Terrible, terrible, Peggy, it's terrible." She said, "Well, it wasn't all bad news, dear." <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, well, your novel went up. <laughs> you, um, I really, I do, I, I, there's so much of your working life I want to talk about, but I do want to talk about boxing as well. When I read that you, when I read that you were a boxer, I sometimes speculate in my imagination about if all the playwrights in Britain had a big fight in competition, who would win? And and you're kind of a newcomer to me as the possible winner of the big fight between my imagining fight between. Well, I was a middleweight, so I was a, I was <laughs> slim. I was a slim, slim, slim and nippy. Slim and nippy, yeah. and and quite, quite cowardly. So I was was uh, was out out of. I, I moved very fast to get out of the range of the punches, and I did pretty well until there was a boy called Angelo Luigi at um, at uh, Lansing, yeah, and. He, and he knocked me out in forty-five seconds, cold. Wow! And wow. then, then he went on to be the ABA junior middleweight <laughs> champion. So I realised that it was, it was like it was a bit like wanting to be an actor, which I which I did when I was young. Did you? Uh, but then when I saw Victor Henry in my play, right? I thought, oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there are, did you? Uh, I think there are analogies between uh, dramatic scenes and different sports I often compare scene writing to playing tennis but I think boxing is a good analogy as yeah. well yeah Brecht was always very keen on yeah boxing scenes yeah I think I think it holds up as a kind of analysis of people competing for something with their life yeah he um you went to Oxford went to new college college yeah and continued to write there studying languages French and German yeah wasn't that cheating as somebody raised in so many languages to do it? <laughs> Sorry, that's... Well, no, because I never... Um, I never sp uh, uh, German was not one of the languages. Right. So, uh, uh, weirdly, at Lansing, uh, that's 
time, you uh, you had a choice for when you came to A levels. You had a choice between German and history. <laughs> that is, um, that is which was an, which of gave me pause, but I did yeah. choose German in the end. Right, uh, and um, and I, I was going to. I was going to go to university and read English like everybody else, um, but I had a marvelous um, uh, French teacher who was also a writer, mm. called Harry Guest, who's, who mm. who who uh, said to me one day, "Don't go and read. Don't go and read English." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Because if you read French and German, you'll have two other literatures open to you, right. and the and you it, in." Is, is you read all those books that you would have read in yeah. uh, in the English uh, department anyway. Yeah, I always had when I, when I chose my degree, I studied history because I wanted my relationship to literature to be that of a lover rather than an analyst or a yeah, critic. You know? Yeah, so that's good. That's a good. I wanted that sense good, of awe. Um, and in a way, the fact that I was complete. Uh, uh, that I was completely ignorant about history, having chosen German. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for the, for the, I've always been very interested in history ever since, in this yes. sort of autodidactic way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do. I, I, it's it's cheeky, but be, your friendship with David Hare has obviously been lifelong, and your colleagues and collaborators. Um, uh, was he a friend of yours at Lansing as well? Did you? Yes, he was. There? Yes, he yeah. was. In fact, uh, uh, I think when we were teenagers, if my memory serves, we attempted at one point to write a play together, which didn't, as far as, far as I remember, right. He was—he was a serial collaborator in his twenties. Yes, and 30s, there, there were there were four or five of us sitting right. down to write a play, and I think I I checked out at a certain point because right, right. Uh, but yeah, I, I I knew him quite well at, at the school. And then uh, I used to go and visit him in Cambridge because right. he was at Cambridge and you I was not. Cambridge. So, okay. yeah. And I used to sort of go across occasionally. Yeah. Um, and then when I came to work at the Royal Court mm. and became literary uh, manager and resident dramatist. You're doing both at the same time? Yeah. And yeah. it was rather uh, sort of at the end of the first year, I hadn't written anything. Because <laughs> <laughs> so I'd been constantly reading other people's plays. And yeah. And you got sent all over the country in those days in that job to, to to see any time a new play appeared anywhere, whether it was at Chester Rep or right. Edinburgh or wherever, you 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 went to see it and, and wrote a report on it for the for the for the court. That was your job. So towards the end of the year, I said to Bill Gaskell, "Look, look I have." He said, "How's the play going?" I said, "I haven't started it really because <laughs> you keep me so busy." Uh, uh, and he said, "Well." Would you like to stay another year? Mm. I said, "Well, I'd love to stay another year, but I need an assistant." <laughs> and he said, "If you can find someone who'll do it for seven pounds fifty a week." <laughs> so I rang David. <laughs> <laughs> so he he came in, and then he he was my successor, and then Howard Brenton was his successor. Can we go back in time just um, just a little bit, just to to um, to the writing of when when did you last see your mother? Because you wrote that at Oxford. No, I actually wrote it before I went up to university because I got expelled from Lansing in the nicest possible way. Um, How can you be expelled nicely? Well, because my housemaster said we think it would be better for you and for the school. <laughs> If you left us now, <clears throat> so I did. Before but taking your A levels. No, no, I took my. I, I, they'd waited till I got into Oxford before they did this. <laughs> right. But I, 
uh, and I, of course it was a perf- it was a perfectly appropriate time to leave except mm. I, my my father was in Zanzibar and he he was keen for me to be still at school right for the next uh, you know the next couple of terms yeah. and I was rather looking forward to lazing about being yeah. there <laughs> Uh, so I was I wasn't expecting to to be thrown out into the world mm. really, uh, and and I was pretty much on my own resources because because Zanzibar at that particular point it's the beginning of sixty four had mm. a revolution, and everybody was incommunicado. You couldn't get you couldn't you didn't know what the hell was going on. You kept reading in the papers that thousands of people were being killed and so on. Jesus. Uh, so it was a slightly alarming time. But so- but because you've got your place at Oxford, you didn't have to kind of stay on and do your exams. You didn't do your A levels. You had no. two terms. No, no, I'd, I'd done my A levels. Right. Then the following, the following uh, December, I suppose yeah. it was, I did the the Oxford entrance. Oh, uh, okay. Thing. So I left okay. it, uh, in, in at the end of. What did you do? Where did you go? Well, I did lots of jobs. It was good for me. I worked in a factory, and when I, which, taught me that. Um, uh, I was absolutely no good at that. I, I, I took the greatest respect for people who work in factories because, you know, they were better at they clearly better at the job than I than I could ever be. Uh, and I did a series of uh, of of menial jobs of one sort or another. Um, I went to Paris and uh, worked in the vegetable market unloading lorries. That was quite nice. It was because it was all night, so you got the day to yourself. Uh, and um, eventually, I wound up in a uh, working for City and Guilds of London, which is a, uh, and the job was to separate the, the the exam papers that were being sent to various schools right. and yep. put them into bundles and yep. send them off. Terribly boring. Uh, and at the time, I was sharing a flat in Earl's Court with my brother and five Australians. <laughs> was very very noisy <laughs> so I used to go to the pub where it was slightly quieter and write uh, right. and, and I wrote during that summer I wrote uh, when did you see my mother uh, in the pub basically uh, and then I didn't know what to do with it I mean it was when I'd written the novel I knew to send it to publishers but mm. there weren't really that many theatres apart from the Royal Court and Hampstead there weren't you know, which seemed unrealistic. Yeah, uh, there weren't many that theatres that did new that many new theatres that did new plays. So you took it with you to Oxford. So I took it with me to Oxford, and at the end of the first my first year at Oxford, uh, the Oxford University Dramatic Society announced that they would do a, a season of uh, plays by undergraduates. Okay. So I handed it in. Yeah. Well, I showed it to my tutor, who was very interested in the theatre. I, I said, well, what do you think I should do? He said, well, I think you should type it out. <laughs> <laughs> Had you handwritten it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and stole an exam paper from City and Guilds of London. <laughs> uh, uh, so so I, di- I did. I, I typed it out and handed it in. And then there was a meeting at the very beginning of the following term to announce the results. Mm. And I was really upset to discover that it was not one of the plays that was chosen. Um, and so I thought, oh, well, sod it. I don't know what to do now. Yeah. And then a couple of weeks later, there was a knock at my door. And it was the uh, secretary of Ouds. And he said, look, um, w- uh, the play that 
you know, that won, that was the number one choice of everybody. He said, it's a, it, it's a musical that's got quite a big cast. <laughs> and he said, we, we, it's just beyond our... Right. He said, your place seems very, as if it might be very cheap. And uh, a, <laughs> one said, five characters. Can you get it on in three weeks? Wow. And you did? And we did. And I, I was in it. Uh, 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 did you direct it as well? No. Right. It was directed by a man who um, was sleeping on my floor at the mm. time. Uh, Michael Charles O'Hagan, Lord O'Hagan, as he then as he was, he was wow. he was most of his time was spent coming up to London and collecting his fee from the House of Lords and then coming back to Oxford again. He was a lord when he was at Oxford. Yes, because his, <laughs> his his father had committed suicide rather sadly. Oh so he, so anyway, he'd been thrown out by his landlady for some reason, and he was sleeping on my floor. <laughs> I said, "Have you ever, have you ever directed a play before?" And he said, "No." And I said, "Well, now's your chance." <laughs> But it was a success, though, right? I mean, or... well, the, bit, the lucky thing was, and this is where it's very, you know, it's hard to sort of get put your mind back into that. The Guardian came and reviewed it. <laughs> I mean, to, to imagine a national newspaper going in and reviewing a student, reviewing drama, a student festival. drama festival is just inconceivable nowadays. But really this is. bloke came. I don't know who he was. He came from the Guardian, yeah, and. Uh, gave it a very good review wow and so then I had lots of um, uh, you know letters from agents and people yeah. and I went to again to my tutor and he said go and see Elizabeth Sweeting at the Oxford Playhouse and ask her advice because right. she knows everybody right right so I went to see her and uh, she said um, well there's only one yeah. agent really and that's Peggy Ramsey yeah. sent it to her when you spoke about Peggy Ramsey earlier in relationship to your novel, your eyes absolutely lit up <laughs> <laughs> with kind of delight. What was she like? What was Peggy Ramsey like? Oh, she was uh, sort of unique. Yeah. She was really not like anyone else I've ever met before or since. She'd had this extraordinary sort of rackety career where she'd been, she was a South African. Right. Uh, her father was quite rich and owned an ostrich farm. <laughs> uh, so she'd had rather a lavish youth yeah. being taken around European, big, grand European hotels by her, her dad, who was bored with the ostriches and wanted to <laughs> wanted to have a, have a good time. Uh, and um, and she she married her philosopher. Uh, yeah, I think her philosophy tutor at university. Mm. They came wow. to they came to England, and she left him the next day. Because <laughs> uh, she really just wanted him to to get it <laughs> get out get out of South Africa. Right. Uh, he was called Ramsey, uh, and uh, um, she became an opera singer. She became an opera singer. I said I once said to her, Peggy, what were you uh, what were you like as an opera singer? She said, Well, not very good, dear, but I was very loud. <laughs> what was she like as an agent? She was uh, astonishing. I mean, the thing was that with my play, which she read and phoned me up at Oxford and told me to come to, mm. I, she said, come to uh, London. I said, when? She said, well, tomorrow. I said, well, I think there's a sort of a, I suppose, go to a Baudelaire lecture. Or... <laughs> she said, fuck that, dear. Come, <laughs> come, come to. So 
I, I went down uh, obediently to London. <laughs> and literally, when I was in her office, the first time I'd met her, she picked up the phone to Bill Gaskell and said, I've got this boy here, very, very interesting. He's written a very interesting play. I think you should do it on one of your Sunday nights. And six weeks later, it was in rehearsal. For a Sunday night performance? Yeah. yeah. The, as we were walking up here, so we're here at the, uh, on the fifth floor, backstage yes. at the Royal Court. This was 1966. Yes, it Had was. Had the theatre upstairs opened? It hadn't it opened. It had not. Yeah. No. So, so paint us a, a brief picture of what, the Royal, what on earth the Royal Court was like in 1966, especially with those men who were so terrifying. For a 19-year-old... Well, they were. They were terrifying. Uh, the, the thing was, I, of which I'd never dared admit to anyone, I'd never been to the Royal Court before. I'd never seen a play I, or anything. I was exactly the same. When I first yeah. came here as resident dramatist, yeah. I'd never seen anything here. So that was, was, you know, I tried to sort of conceal that as best I could. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, the the director of Wendy Loss and My Mother was a, a, a young Scot called um, Robert Kidd. Right. Who turned, who, who it turned out had never directed a play before. He was in, he was on the stage management team and Bill had said, you like this play? You do it. it was, that was kind of his way. Uh, and and so we found ourselves in uh, so the play had been on in February in in Oxford yeah and now we're in May or something and the, the play opened in June and it just it was it just a Sunday night performance or it's it just happen? a Sunday night performance yeah uh, but what it, does that mean for people who, who aren't familiar with what the Sunday night performance means uh, they were they were called productions without decor right so there was a kind of vestigial set on whatever set happened to be the set of the play mm -hmm. that was currently in the, the uh, playing. Uh, and uh, the actors learned the lines. Right. Uh, and, and you had a full four-week rehearsal. Uh, y yes. Yeah. Um, I think the actors were, were paid, you know, two pounds or something. Okay. And, uh, wow. and, uh, uh, and, the, and I got five pounds. <laughs> Which very, very reasonable, uh, and um, and and the critics came on right. a Sunday night, so you were, you were sure of a, a good you know spread of yeah. reviews, and the reviews of when you last my mother were among the best I've ever had. So. Right. So then right. Michael Cauldron who had been there that evening. Yeah. Uh, oh no! I think what happened was that they did they it was they repeated it on the second Sunday night. Okay. Michael Cauldron came to see it yeah. and uh, said that he would move it to the West End. <laughs> <laughs> On the back of two Sunday night performances, yeah. having been in the student drama festival yeah. months earlier, yeah. you were going to the West End. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What, what was that like? It was extraordinary. I mean, it was great. Uh, I don't think I really sort of understood quite how extraordinary it was at the time. Mm. Uh, I slightly took it for granted. I, mm. I don't know. I remember going around with uh, Michael Codron uh, 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 gave me a press minder because there were lots of interviews because I was so young. Yeah. So you're 19, right? Uh, yeah, I just turned 20, I think. Right. So um, I mean, I remember doing an interview with Barry Norman of the of the, da <laughs> From, of the, <laughs> the, of the old, Daily Mail. Yeah. yeah. And and so I started to do these interviews, and I remember saying to the, the press lady. God, this is boring. I keep saying the same thing over and over again. This is really 
do we have to do many more of these? And she <laughs> tore a strip off me. She said, you have no idea how lucky you are. Right, right. Just shut up and answer the questions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I speak to writers who have a great deal of success quite early in their working life, sometimes it can be a dislocating or disorientating experience. But I guess because you've been writing plays for, f you know, 10 years... <laughs> <laughs> you you kind of knew what to do next. Your muscle was exercised about what you do with such success. You just do what. Well, I think done. what the I think the confusing moment for me was when I wrote my second play, which was Total Eclipse. Yeah. Uh, which. Uh, a beautiful play. Which came on here directly after you know I I went from Oxford to here to the Royal Court because well, I came down in the in the summer. Just before I took my finals, I came down to see a play, a John Osborne play. Right. And Bill Gaskell took me for a drink afterwards in the pub. Yeah. And he said, what are you going to do when you when you graduate? I said, well, really, I hadn't thought about it. Uh, and really, you know, obviously I'd like to write, but mm. um, I don't know, I suppose I'll teach or something. I don't know what. Yeah. And he said, um, well, uh, let's see if we can find you something here. And then he rang me up and said, um, "We've got a, we've got a, we've got a, a thousand quid out of the arts council, arts council yeah. to for you to be resident dramatist." I said, "My God, that sounds that's wonderful." He said, <laughs> "He said, no, no, we've only called you resident dramatist so we could get the thousand quid out of the arts council. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to, you know, you're going to have to do all kinds of different jobs here." Right. Uh, right. And that was great because I, you know, I got to go to rehearsals. I got to see all these right. plays. I got to meet lots of writers. I, yeah. I just had it was a real education. What was the atmosphere in the in the theatre like at that time? It was quite embattled. Yeah. Because there was a, a an ongoing fight with the censorship. Yeah, of uh, course. Bill had um, was on a, had a suspended sentence because of putting on. Uh, a play by Edward Bunkle, Early Morning, uh, in, to which we all came in through the stage door to watch on a Sunday morning, I think. Uh, and uh, It's an astonishing play. It's an astonishing Queen play. Queen Victoria is, uh, has a lesbian Le relationship with Florence Nightingale. Who was played by Marianne Faithful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so it was a, it was a sort of startling uh, yeah. um, morning in the theatre. Uh, uh, but there was there had been some breach of uh, 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 he was uh, you know he was had up for it and he was given suspended sentence yeah I believe so uh, so they were all they were all quite uh, uh, you know they were and part of the interesting thing about being at the court was that, was that there were there were th uh, the, there were three artistic directors by then right there was Bill there was Lindsay Anderson there yeah. was Anthony Page. They were all at each other's throats all the time. They all liked completely different kinds of work. Right. And it was quite good for the theatre because there was a, a great uh, diversity of, of work yeah. going on. Anyway, to go back to what I was saying, when, when Total Eclipse was on, which was right after I graduated, yeah. um, uh, I, knew, I knew the play was, was much better than When You Lost My Mother. Yeah. On the other hand, it, was, it had terrible reviews. I mean, universally terrible reviews, and so that was very that was a bit confusing. Yeah, because you thought, hang on, I don't really understand how this works, uh, and I don't know. 
you know, I was confused for a while. How? What did you do with the confusion? How did you? How did you kind of work your way through it? Well, it was. It, you know, luckily I was very busy because I was. It was that year of, uh, of being the resident dramatist. Being the resident yeah. dramatist, so I was yeah. doing everything that. I, and it, so it took me a year to work out that that I should just write another play and and make it uh, again a, a completely sort of different play from the from the previous one. Um, when I look at those court plays, sorry, I interrupted yeah. you again. No, go on. Uh, the thematic difference between all of them and the world and the kind of the temperature and the energy is is really exceptional, I think. And unlike most playwrights, the what was this was something you were conscious of. You were consciously setting out to write. Unlike, yeah, I really it? wanted to write lots of different sorts of things. Yeah, why do you think that was? What, I have no idea. But I, I I didn't have a sort of imperative to to develop a style or yeah or or be a sort of recognisable. Mm. Uh, um, kind of writer, mm. like, of course, most of the writers that I was looking at and and were here at the court uh, had their own, you know, had their own individual stamp. Yeah, I was really interested in being all over the place. Yes, try this, try that. Right, right. It just seemed it. It just seemed it. It would be interesting to me, or you know, to keep keep me interested. And the play you wrote after Total Eclipse, that was Savages, right? No, the play I wrote after Total Eclipse was The Philanthropist. I'm so sorry. No, that's right. It was, it was, the, that's the play I wrote in the second year when David was doing all the donkey work. <laughs> <laughs> but The Philanthropist um, was a success as well. That did transfer it, into, that, that was, Yes. Yeah. That was a, that was the, the sort of breakthrough in a way. Right. Uh, uh, again, it had a sort of curious, uh, because I wrote it, handed it in mm. Bill Gaskell said he was going to direct it mm. um, so that, that was great Robert Kidd who'd done my first two plays was a bit put out but uh, but uh, <laughs> anyway you know Bill was running the theatre mm. and he it, it went through a long period of him offering it to various actors and yeah and then one day I came in to work here and he called me to his office and he said, you know, I, I had another look at the play last night. Huge Gaskillian pause. <laughs> it's not for me. Oh. And I thought, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> really? Because I loved Bill and I loved his work, but yeah. I knew it wasn't temperamentally the right, uh, right. the kind of play that he was good at. Yeah. So Bob came back. Great. Uh, and, and we... we Got the play on uh, in, uh, I want to say August 1970, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we had a very tough rehearsal period um, because nobody thought it was, it's often the case with, it's very, with comedies. Yeah, it's yeah. very, very depressing rehearsing comedies. Yeah. Because there's nobody in the room to laugh at them. That's right. And halfway yeah. through, you think no one's ever going to possibly laugh at this joke I've yeah. heard 17 times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ever <laughs> so everyone was utterly gloomy by the time and we had a terrible session with Bill in his in his office where we went through the play very carefully to see what was wrong with it and, <laughs> and at the end of it he said I don't know it's just the play oh bloody hell 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? Maybe with an audience, the jokes might, <laughs> people might laugh. No, no. But then, of course, the first audience we got in, it was everything was fine. That's great. But you see, Bill was very, he was very, he said a lot of interesting. And when we were doing Total Eclipse, Robert Kidd and I were, there were certain things in the second act we thought weren't working at all. Right. So we asked Bill to come to a, 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 a morning run through, which he did, mm. and then he took us out to lunch. Um, we bombarded, we said, you know, suppose we do this, or what about, you know, mm. fixing it by doing that? And he said, um, listen, he said to me, you're very young. Of course, there were lots of things wrong with the play, but I think we should do it as you wrote it. I said, great. And he said, he, the audience will teach you what's wrong with it. Uh, and then when, it's re when you do it again, when you revive it, you'll, you'll be able to fix it. Wow. That's pretty inconceivable. To, in, in the current climate of, climate of development, yeah. workshopping, yeah. revising, yeah. that kind of confidence is... Yeah. And he was quite right, because it was revived, I think 12 years later, David Hare directed it at the Lyric Hammersmith. Yeah. And yeah. and it was suddenly a great success. Yes, because because I had in that decade been able to work out what was wrong with it. I don't think I you know, couldn't possibly have worked out what was wrong with it in the three days before the first performance, or you know, whenever whenever we had that conversation. There's so much I want to talk to you about. I, I'm nervous that if I keep going play by play. We'll be here for about five or six hours, which okay. I think I'd really enjoy. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody else was. So let me ask you this: um, that remarkable period in the kind of the start of the '70s when you were working here as resident dramatist, as literary manager, but also as a successful writer with plays transferring from here into the West and then going on to Broadway. What did you learn about what the Royal Court meant for you? What was, what did you take away from the Royal Court at that time? Well, it's always, I've al always thought of it as a kind of primal scene. It's always seemed to me the perfect theatre. Uh, I mean, I feel very nostalgic about it. I feel very, um, I, I was in love with this theatre. Uh, and I had, I think it was probably six or seven shows in 10 years mm. here. Mm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Stuart Burge came on after after Bill and, and, and Lindsay and Anthony, mm. and then, uh, and then, oh, Oscar Lewinstein was here before before that. Mm. Uh, and so were Robert Kidd and Nick Wright. Yeah. So, yeah. so it'd been various regimes. Yes. That, uh, and in 1976, that's 10 years. Yeah. Max Stafford Clark arrived. Yeah. And so I came in to see him, and he said, uh, scarcely believe I had this conversation but anyway he said what what are you going to do next what what we're looking forward to whatever it is you're yeah. going to do next I said listen I I sort of feel that the the Royal Court is for new writers I think I better move on I think I should move on <laughs> so I did um but it but it I, I you know it seems sort of idiotic now but but I did I did feel that I don't think the amount of, when I think you know, not as interviewer as Royal Court playwright, who shares a love of this theatre with you. I I think about I've heard that story before, and I think about it very often, 
when I wrestle with my relationship with this place because I think it's right to a degree. I think maybe I should leave it behind. And I, I always find there's something quite heroic in that gesture of yours. It seems it seems slightly foolish now, but uh, but uh, but it, uh, it seemed like the right thing to do at a the lot time. Of heroes are foolish. <laughs> do you regret it? Do you? Re- no, because I I I, w- I went on to to other things. I think yeah. I think after after treats was here, I thought I I thought I should have. What I really then wanted to do was sort of work out how to write films. So yeah. I took a I took a, a I didn't write another play for. The next play after that was Tell Some Hollywood, which was five years later. So I spent that five years really trying to work out how to write films. And were you working largely in California? Did you go to Hollywood for your apprenticeship there? No, no, no. I did did have a couple of bouts out there. Yeah. But both were in connection with first researching and then then actually putting on uh, Tell Some Hollywood, which was commissioned by... uh, by a theatre in in, in yeah, Los that's Angeles. Right. That's right. That's right. Um, what so um, what did you learn um, in those five years? What did you learn about the difference between being a playwright and being a screenwriter? I think well, uh, was, there was a, a ongoing dialogue all this time with Peggy Ramsey, who was very against, who didn't really like the cinema, <laughs> um, and the fir- the only really huge row we had when she. Um, sort of try to get rid of me um, was that I had I wrote her a letter and I said Peggy you don't understand I really love the cinema yeah yeah you're raised uh, with the cinema uh, uh, and and that and I just want to work out how to do this just leave me alone for a minute and now uh, I, I was I, I spent a year writing this film called Carrington. Yeah. Uh, at that point, it, it was finally made in the nineties, which yes, that's right. nearly twenty years later. Yeah. But that's what I was trying to work on. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, and eventually, I think she she accepted that that I had this eccentric uh, liking of, of <laughs> films. Um, so yeah, so that that's what I did for, and also I I started seriously. I did the first Horvath play. Yeah. At that point. First uh, translation of a Horvath. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which, which is, uh, I had, you know, the Royal Court, looping back, mm. had uh, uh, instituted this idea of, the, of playwrights doing, doing uh, uh, the classics. Doing so, in other words, that you, the, the the classics were, were, might be better translated by people who could write dialogue, rather than people who could know exactly what the what the what the language meant. So I'd done, I uh, here at the Royal Court they'd done a series of Chekhov's. Angelica had done the Seagull. Edward Bond had done Three Sisters. Yeah. And I did Uncle Vanya. You didn't have Russian. You didn't speak Russian. I had done a year of Russian. Yeah, but, but you I weren't translating. From no, no. Czech I worked Russian. with I worked with a Russian lady. Yeah. Uh, who who provided me with a literal translation. Yeah. Uh, but so I got interested in in the idea of. Uh, translating plays so you had the the two the two uh, the two wings of screenwriting and translation as well yeah and and uh, 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 I remember when the they opened the National Theatre at the South Bank yeah um, in 76 I had a conversation with Tom Stoppard and he said they want lots of plays now because they got three theatres <laughs> he said he said uh, he said if they if they really like you they'll ask you for a play 
if they don't really like you but think they ought to, <laughs> they'll ask you for a translation. <laughs> what did they ask you for? A Marivo translation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, um, and I, I turned it down. But they, but uh, in the course of the conversation that I had with John Russell Brown, who was the literary manager there at the time, yeah. we started to talk about Horvath, uh, who I'd come across when I was uh, in working in Germany in the right. in the sixties, and uh, and he was very interested in, in that play, uh, Tales from the Vienna Woods. Yes. So at the same time as I was trying to write this screenplay, I was also doing. The, f the, f the first in a new kind of translation for me, which was to translate a play that had never been translated by anybody else. So you were, you were translating from the German. Yes, yeah. and doing it doing it straight from the from the German, and so. Does that feel differently in your head? Yeah, it does. I think it does. Can you describe the difference? Because I've done translations, but only from accurate from translations from, or yeah. literal translations. Yeah. yeah, I think you just you just, it's just easier, than. Um, than going through that because I find I don't know if this is your experience at all I find when I do translations from literals mm. uh, I'm always n nagging the person who's done the literal and saying oh, right. so, no no what what tell me again what this line means and Brilliant. you know trying yeah. to whereas if you know the language that that doesn't that 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 doesn't happen so More much. Horvath is is a very very difficult writer to. It's like it's like you can imagine a German translating Ocasey or something because because the language because is so the, idiomatic because the rich. language is very yeah. you know provincial and yeah and uh, and specific and mm. and unusual. Is it fair to say that your relationship with Horvath is really there's something really special about that, or am I imposing on that, imposing that on you? No, I think I think I kind of decided that uh, I, I I I mean I'd read a lot of his plays and he, he wrote seventeen I think, yeah, uh, and I I felt that this was this was the writer that of the twentieth century playwright that really spoke to me. What was it about his writing that most resonated? I think the total unjudgmental. Right. of it you know the, right. the and the uh, the sort of openness to all and also i think the the sort of taste for the bizarre and slightly off kilter <laughs> and you know he loved he he loved weird things yeah you know there's a story about him going he, he used to go hiking a lot in the mountains in austria and and apparently one day he was in some inaccessible bit and he found a, a skeleton in a crevasse with, with a rucksack. Wow. So he investigated and uh, uh, and he found that there was a postcard in the in the rucksack and he was telling the story and his friend said um, so what did you do? He said well I posted it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's the right thing to do I think to be fair. Yes. <laughs> it's what he would have wanted. Anyway that, so, so from that story I kind of I kind of got a sense of what he was like, and I, right. and I, and I, re I really became fond of him. Mm. You're you're unusual in that you've written at least a couple of times. I think more 
about writers. You've dramatised the lives of writers, not just in Tales of Hollywood, but, but you've returned to, returned to this. What is it about that, do you think? I'm very interested in, it's not only writers, it's artists in general, yeah. right? and what whatever it is. Because I've written a couple of films about painters yeah. as well. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm now writing, at the moment I'm writing a film about Shostakovich. Uh, uh, I'm just interested in what, and, and it's, I suppose it takes the place of the sort of autobiographical impulse of a lot of writers. You, yeah. you know, in other words, a lot of writers write from their own life. And I, I, and what I'm more interested in is trying to find out what it is that that makes people want to be an artist or write or paint or yes. You know. And I suppose that I'm interested in that really because uh, it, it was. Is something that was not in my family at all. Yeah. So I'm very, very interested to kind of work out why, what it is, yeah. about being a about being a writer that attracted me. How close to figuring it out are you? Not terribly close. But, <laughs> but it's a very, it's a very sort of rich vein. Yeah. Well, the, we only keep we only keep asking the questions we can't answer. Yeah. That's what keeps us it's going. True, it's true. I'm fascinated by uh, two. I mean, you've collaborated with so many people two really striking and startling and different ones. Firstly, your collaboration with Andrew Lord Webber. Because from from your biography, the you know, from the story of your life coming through the court, that would seem an unusual person to be a regular collaborator with. How did that start and what and 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 how what do you get from that? How well, is he to work with? Well, also at Lansing, right. Uh who uh, um, uh, was someone who I knew actually slightly better than 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 David yeah. at the time, and that was Tim Rice. Oh, brilliant. Uh, and so I was quite a close friend of his, so then he obviously started to work with. So I met Andrew, mm. I guess, when we were both teenagers, probably. Right, right. Uh, and the first thing was that they asked me to write the book of Jesus Christ Superstar. And I went round and listened to the tape that they'd made. And I said, it's two hours long, where's the book going to go? <laughs> <laughs> said, "What well, do we just want a bit of connecting tissue?" And I said, "Look, it's it's like a sort of opera. Everybody knows the story. You, know. just, you don't need a book. Don't need a book. You so talk yourself out. <laughs> talk myself out of that. And then, <laughs> after Tim and Andrew had sort of broken up, um, uh, Andrew took me out to lunch and he said, "I'd like to like to do a, a show with you." Yeah. I said, well, "Yeah, sure, great." And he said, I, "I've got this idea to do a musical based on the Phantom of the Opera." I said, oh, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> so, there we are. Uh, but I did say to him, uh, it, I would like I would like to do a musical because I'd never done a musical. Uh, and I, I, I sort of love the idea of doing Sunset Boulevard because it's Great. one of my favourite films and, yeah. and it seems a sort of operatic plot and let's do that. Mm. So he looked a bit thoughtful and then eight years later he called me up and said, and said, uh, actually, he said, what well, he rang and asked me if I would write the book. Mm. I said, well, hang on a minute. Look, you, you never have books. <laughs> yeah. He said, well, we, th we th thought we might have a book this time. We might have a book. Right. I said, well, I wanted to write the lyrics. And he said, oh, I've asked Don Black to write the lyrics. Oh. So, so you better have lunch with him. <laughs> so I had lunch with Don Black. And I said, I want to write the, the lyrics. He said, OK, let's do it together. OK. So how was lyric writing? It's fun. It's, yeah. fun. it's it's probably best done with two people. Why? 
Well, because otherwise you go bonkers trying to think of a rhyme for oranges. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to give, because um, I'm fascinated by musical theatre, and I'm, I'm my late forties now, I'm just starting to yeah. at the foothills of trying to write some musical musical theatre. Um, if you were to give me like a tip, a top tip for writing musical theatre as distinct from the kind of raw court plays that. That I've normally written. What would you it, say? Well, it isn't. It isn't that different, actually. It, it, right. It's the same principle. Uh, um, it's but uh, you have to be prepared for the. What's different is the rehearsal period, because uh, doing a musical is like a kind of industrial. You yeah. Know, there's there are all these huge yeah. forces that arrive on the rehearsal room on the first day. Right. And you suddenly think. Well, you know, and yeah. and then and then you have to be quite quick on your feet during rehearsals. I think because all all kinds of things go wrong, or people, you, you know, you you kind of have to re re redo things. Yes, a bit more than 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 with a play. Right, and be able to rewrite in the room and things. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Literally, or even in the recording studio. Don and I have been in the corner scri- scribbling, mm. rewrite <laughs> rewrites for yeah. the scenes. Wow, uh, it's all that's all good fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the play of it, and 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 f- and tell me as well uh, about your collaboration with Philip Glass. Well, that that started. I I I met Philip in. Uh, he wrote a great opera called Satyagraha, mm. and when it was first done, it was it was in San Francisco, and I was working in San Francisco for some reason I can't now remember why. And a friend took me along to this this opera, and it, it sort of blew me away, and I. Th- I said, oh, uh, I just think this is, you know, so unlike anything I've seen before and so interesting. Mm-hmm. He said, well, I'm coming again tomorrow and Philip's here tomorrow, so come back again and see it again. So I did and I met Philip and uh, many years went by and then I asked, I directed a film version of The Secret Agent by Conrad. And I asked him to write the music. Uh, and while he was doing that, which he did with tremendous sort of speed yeah. and efficiency, he said, have you ever thought about writing a libretto? I said, I've thought about it, but I haven't ever done it. And he said, well, uh, uh, um, I'm just being commissioned by an opera house in Germany to do uh, an opera based on Waiting for the Barbarians by J.M. Quetzi. Mm. And I said, well, that's, I, I know the book. Mm. And so, uh, uh, so, I, so that's how it all, that, yeah. that all started. And it culminated uh, about five years ago, he, he wrote a, an opera based on a play of mine called Appomattox, uh, which we did at the Kennedy Center in, in wow. Washington, which was incredibly exciting to, to go from Extremely. one medium to another yeah. in that way. The, um, where do you write? Uh, I have lots of desks, seems to me. <laughs> because I, I used to do this sort of logical thing and do one 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 project at a time. Yeah. But now I find I'm doing four or five things at once. Should you have a different desk for each project? I do. <laughs> where are the desks? Are they in your house or have you got an uh, office? I've got an office. Um, so That's there, so. brilliant. You've got a different desk for each project. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, what's your working day like? I'm I'm very good in the afternoons, uh, best in the afternoons. Right. 
uh, I know from talking to David, David Hare that he that he tends to be done by lunchtime, which yeah. is very enviable. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm only just getting started about that point. Right. And I tend to work best between sort of two and seven. And how has your um, your life as a dad affected your 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 life as an artist? Did you... Well, I I I I, I, it, it, I guess it cha- it changed certain things. You, you I stopped writing at night, right? Um, which yeah. is a simple thing. Yeah. Uh, and then I found I liked not writing at night, and and I always liked. Um, them be you know being in the same place as them mm. while I was so I would I didn't mind if they came no I quite like it I, when they, my kids were little I used to like it when yeah. they came in yeah before they could read what was actually on the screen I remember writing punk rock which is quite a violent play and my eight-year-old nine-year-old at the time just reading the screen while I was writing and then thinking maybe you shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> I never had that problem because I write longhand <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, you, do you still write longhand yeah it's a, just wow. a habit. It's just a habit. Have you ever tried writing on screen? Uh, only, you know, I write sort of articles or if right. that sort of thing. I can do that. Do you type your plays up yourself or do you just... No, it's, I, I usually give them all, give them to someone to type up so they, they arrive typed. I uh, get a kind of ru- rush of, of uh, the, the new. Is that purely out of is that purely out of uh, of habit that process of writing? About yeah. Do you think there's something in it that is important? To you? No, it's just what I'd, it's, I. It's I like the the feel of of writing by hand. Right. Um. Uh, and I never. I mean, I. I used to. I used to. Uh, try in, in the you know when I started, I thought used to think well, you if you're a proper writer, you should write on the typewriter. Yeah. And I tried that a, a, a bit, yeah. and then I didn't really. Take to it. Do you write in exercise books? Or do you write on? I, 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 there are there are sort of hardback black um, uh, books that you can get at Ryman's. Yeah. And I write on one 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 side of the page, right? Or one page, and then on the facing page, I can jigger about with it. Do you um, uh, are you writing straight into dialogue, or are you a, a, a note taker, a planner? I'm a bit of a planner. Yeah. Uh, not too much, mm-hmm. but I, I like to know, you know, basically how many scenes are going to be, what's going to happen in each scene, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. before I start. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily stick to it, but mm-hmm. that's that's uh, that's the. It, 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 and then I can write. If I've done that work, I can then write quite fast. Yeah. Otherwise, I find I'm s- struggling a bit. And then in two thousand and six, the fiftieth anniversary of this place, you you were invited back. I know that was nice. <laughs> How was it? Ian did. Yeah. So Ian just called you. Yeah. Yeah. What did he say? Well, he asked me. He said that you know that was the fiftieth anniversary, and he wanted to do the Seagull. Yeah. And I said, well, it's actually my favourite play ever in the world. Mm. So mm. I said, um, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And then it was a most beautiful production. It was gorgeous. Uh, and so it was nothing but. Nothing but a huge pleasure. What did you learn from Chekhov? What don't you learn from yeah. Chekhov? He's just the best. Have you done all of them now? No, I haven't done... Ian and I have been talking about doing the Cherry Orchard at some point. Yeah. But we haven't done that yet. Uh, otherwise, I've done the three the three big ones. And is Chekhov very different to Ibsen? Yeah. In what way, can you say? Uh, yes, um, it's... Uh, 
it's Chekhov is much more about the texture of the of the writing and the and the the skill of placing every single line in the right place at the right yeah. time so that you can't you you really can't cut them they're just <laughs> mm. i mean it's it's foolish to cut them because yeah. they're so beautifully orchestrated yes ibsen is um much more sort of muscular and uh, right you, you know a, a, great in a, in a, in a, in a completely different way because it's the themes it's the it's the ideas it's not the specifics yeah. so much so you can cut ibsen yes uh yeah. you can he's quite robust in in the in 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 terms of how much you can mess him around the um briefly um in recent years the translations of Florian Zeller and Yas Yasmina Reza have been amongst the most successful translations in in the English theatre <laughs> what what have you how is it working with Razor and, and and Zeller in comparison to working with I mean you know well different yeah. different they're different from each other as well right uh, I mean because Yasmin is in a, in a, you know broadest possible terms Yasmin is quite difficult and <laughs> Florian's very easy um, and she's only difficult because she 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 just questions everything right uh, and she doesn't like you do with your literal translators yes that's right <laughs> and she's and she's profoundly suspicious of. Okay. Oh, she's profoundly suspicious of success. Okay. Um, so that I she must have hated her eight year run in the West End with art. <laughs> I think she. I think she probably did actually. Right. Okay. No, at the end of the first preview of art, which yeah. had gone like a dream and the yeah. audience falling about. Yeah. She turned to me and said, "What have you done to my play?" <laughs> <laughs> so I said, "Well, I, I don't know. I think it seems seemed to seem to have gone quite well." <laughs> Uh, uh, and she was the same at the first preview of God of Carnage. She was very sort of. Dis she doesn't like. She doesn't understand why English audiences like to laugh so yeah. much. It's a really common thing in European theatre makers. Yeah. yeah, they're baffled by the English yeah. impulse to laugh. Yeah, yeah. So that's so uh, that's. Um, Florian, on the other hand, seems to be delighted. He writes these rather somber plays, mm. uh, uh, and then he's delighted when the audience laughs. But <laughs> and he also writes very good comic plays. Uh, yeah, because there are two called "The Truth and the Lie" that I've yeah. done, which are both very, very funny. Yes. Uh, so, so they're just they're they're different in the sense that they're very different human beings. But, uh, but it but it's been very, it's been very uh, stimulating actually. You know, do you, what was great about the, the Yasmina being the first, art being the first play of this kind that I did. Yeah was that you know I found the play in Paris and and I thought well this this writer is fantastic why don't you know we should bring her to London yeah. and <clears throat> I think the I the, the business of launching uh, you know really good writers in 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 the English-speaking world is I, I you know I wish more people would do it right yeah Course. Because because there are lots of good writers out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, completely. And uh, and it's just good for us. Yeah. To see them. Yeah, yeah. As artists, it's good to uh, consider what people in d different cultures and moments are doing with the same art form that we're working with. Yeah. Whenever I've done a 
I was yeah, you worked a lot in Germany. I've you? worked a lot in Germany and, 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 and had several world premieres in Germany. So it's not just having German productions of plays that have opened in England. I think with Sebastian Nubling, who's directed more of my plays than any other director, I think there's eight now world premieres in Germany. And you, it's like watching football played in a different country. You realise that the assumptions that we make about how football is played aren't necessarily the only way. It's not well, necessarily right. the only way to play football or food. And you know the way the way food changed when people started travelling to Europe in the seventies and eighties and yeah, realising right. that pasta was great. <laughs> <laughs> I I, I kind of like get that when I work with writers. When I'm working with, I think it informs the choices that I make as an artist. Yeah. And you know, having worked on Jon Foster's play, to go back to my own writing, I was a different writer. I think. Yes, that's right. Well, you know, uh, people say, well, why, why do you... There's 105 translations of The Seagull. Why would you want to do it? <laughs> I made the 106, and, I think. <laughs> and, and then, and then yeah. you, you think, well, w w what could be better than spending two months with, with think, that play? I, I love the story of uh, Heiner Moller teaching in, in Berlin at the Universität der Kunst. He taught there for a year. And he gave his students two exercises, which were both spectacularly good. Lazy teacher, but really good exercises. One was to write a scene in which somebody murdered another character and to imagine it from before the murder, the act of the murder and the aftermath of the murder, which is a really good thing for a writer to have to do. The second was to transcribe the entirety of Hedda Gabler by hand, <laughs> which I think that's what I do when I'm doing a version. It's that commitment to the other, yeah, the other great mind. Can I, did. I, yeah, I did. I did. I did Hedda Gabler when I was hit, when I was here with Peter Gill. Uh, we, we didn't. Here. We didn't produce it here. It was actually. Uh, um, it was actually done at the Festival Theatre in Stratford, Ontario. Wow! But uh, he and I were both on the staff here. And I came into work one day and he said, he said, what do you think about Hedda Gabler? I said, well, it's fantastic. He said, well, we got we start rehearsals in six weeks. <laughs> I want to just finish briefly by asking you, to kind of a bit of a gear change in a way, Dangerous Liaisons winning the Oscar, having gone to Hollywood, having written so successfully for screen. A, what on earth was that like? First of all, that's my first question. But that whole madness of the Oscars, what do you enjoy that? Is that baffling? Or? Do you know, it was a different thing in those days. It right. was 89. Yeah. And it was quite It was quite a bit more... I mean, I remember when I was here at the court, um, John Osborne won, won uh, the yeah. Oscar for Tom Jones. He didn't even bother to go. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, uh, right. And in, uh, uh, with Liaison, yeah. I think we got... I think it was seven nominations. Mm. So we all went out on, as it were, the Thursday. Mm -hmm. The thing happened at the weekend. Mm. Uh, we all had a big party and we all flew home on the Monday. <laughs> Sounds quite jolly. And it was, it was, it was absolutely fun. It was yeah. not, not really a big deal. Of course, right. it was great to win. Yeah. But it was not really a big deal. Mm. Whereas when I did Atonement, mm -hmm. which was, you know, getting on for, uh, 10 years to 20 years later yeah um uh, uh in september we started the the circuit i mean all of us had to go and do a thousand interviews all over america and wow. you know eat dinners on the rubber chicken circuit and <laughs> and and it was 
it was like it was like a sort of punishment. It was like going to prison because <laughs> uh, you had to guess it's saying this, you know, doing these early morning interviews in Cleveland or whatever it was, yeah. burbling out the same old stuff. Yeah. And at the first dinner in September, um, Tim Bevan, who produced it for Working Title, he, I said, "God, this is." We've really got to do all you know, looking at the schedule. We've really got to do all this. He said, Yes, and that's he said the sad thing is is that none of us are gonna win. I said I said, well, you really think so? And he said, Yeah. He said this year it's the Cohen brothers. Wow. And it was. He yeah. was absolutely right. Yeah. So it was all a complete waste of time. <laughs> and so in a way the Oscars are you know, when I did a, a, a this film of David Cronenberg mm. based on my play The Talking Cure Play, a film called Dangerous Method. He actually called me up and said, "We haven't had got any nominations. Isn't that great?" <laughs> <laughs> but then to co to fin- you know to finish, you talk so beautifully about your dad, um, and your and him taking you to the cinema in Alexandria. That must be a nice thing to know that you've mastered the art form that your dad. Yeah, I know, you. I know. Well, the sad thing, the sad thing about my dad was he died when I was when I was 19 so he never actually saw any of the plays or anything but uh, but uh, he was um, he, he was a very uh, admirable man I think and in fact in, in did a heroic thing in the during the sort of revolution in Zanzibar that I alluded to yeah. uh, 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 there was uh, Zanzibar became uh, independent and there was an election, and there were three parties, uh, and the 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 party, the Arab party, and the and the Indian party, um, combined, uh, formed a coalition, and therefore had a majority, mm. uh, meaning that the African party did not get elected, and so they decided to just just take power, and in the middle of the night they mm. just uh, uh, issued more or less issued weapons to everybody and said go kill as many and all my father's staff were Indians uh, and uh, he, he his apartment was above the the office which was the the cable the cable office and at three o'clock in the morning on the day of the revolution they the the, the president who was a man called Sheikh Karumi the the the, the, the dictator uh, arrived at the door and said um, you have to tell, you know, have to announce to the world that there's been this revolution in Zanzibar, and uh, and this is what's happened. Mm. And my father, thinking very quick, went downstairs with them, and he said, you know, there's been a certain amount of damage to, uh, to the to the machinery down here, and I can't, I don't know how to do this. I have to have my staff. Wow. So they put him in a, in a car and. He went, they were all in concentration camps and he got them all out and pretended that he couldn't actually operate without the staff. Without the staff. Yeah. Simultaneously, he was hiding Kenyans in the, wow. in the apartment. Mm. So I was very proud of him for doing all that. I dare say he'd been pretty proud of you for winning that Oscar, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Hampton, thank you very, very much. Indeed. Thank you, Simon. Thank you. The, uh, at the um, at the at the end at the end of the interview, we have what, uh, what uh, we've got facts and questions from Nushka. 
Yeah. So she's sitting there, and you, you think she's just kind of like doing her emails or something, but she's got she she collates uh, sometimes surprising or ent entertaining facts and questions. Do you have any facts and questions, Noosh? Yeah, the thing is, that was such a beautiful story to end it on. I don't really want to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the time. But. Um, these are just quick fire. Um, can you remember the name of your teenage novel? Peter Stone. Oh. Good name, good title. Okay, very good. <laughs> That's all we're going to get from that. Um, oh, yes. Come on, why were you actually expelled, though? Like, that would have been the reason. Uh, yes, no, I think it was g general sort of Bolshevism, really. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I only remember having one sort of row with the authorities, which was, uh, it was uh, Lansing has an, an, there's an enormous chapel they, that they started to build in the 19th century, which is a sort of beacon on the South Downs. If you're driving by, you see this huge Gothic building. And we had to go eight times a week oh, to God. church. Wow! Hold on, it's only seven days. Exactly, twice, twice on Sundays. Uh, and um, <laughs> so, so it was fun. It was fun. I used to, you know, the choir would sing and all the rest of it. And I, I went and saw my housemaster, and I said, "Look, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to go. You know, eight times a week, but I don't like kneeling." <laughs> I said, "So, do, do you mind if I just sort of, I just sort of lean forward in some <laughs> respectful way?" <laughs> And I'm uh, and I'm not going to kneel. And he said, "He was quite discombobulated, I think." But anyway, that's what I did, and so that didn't go down too well. Um, so it was stuff like that, really. Got it. That makes sense. Um, just also smoking behind the bike sheds, <laughs> <laughs> but they never, never caught me. <laughs> um, so, do you actually write in? Um, by hand, your film scripts. Yeah, I write everything by hand. Oh, right. Well, I knew that you meant that for the uh, 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 once it's Once it's in the computer, in other words, with the film, you've got to do lots of drafts. Yeah, I do so the, then you'll yeah. go Then I'll do it on okay, the computer. No, I wondered right. if you're like the only person in the world that never had to. No, 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 no. <laughs> Um, and then uh, there was one for Simon. If you're really going to get into this musical theatre business, there's this <laughs> <laughs> You should have seen Noosh's our faces when you mentioned that. We I, mean, I, I felt something happening in the room. This is when, what's going on. Yeah. You're going to go on to something called www.rhymezone. <laughs> I've been on Rhymezone. You could have used I've been this on back in the day if the internet had It's just a rhyming dictionary. It's an internet rhyming yeah, dictionary. You will be whacking out rhymes to do with oranges or whatever super quick. Not I've with got, oranges, you won't. Oh, <laughs> honestly, I do it. I've been, um, I do like a rap, a rap battle um, text thing. And the person I do it with is so quick. But I'm not as quick. So I have Rhymezone up any time. So then I can boosh, get back. So, yeah. I like the idea that you're giving Christopher Hampton tips on how to write I'd books write, and musicals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's mainly for Simon. It's definitely for Simon. And then finally, because of what Simon started with, to say that everything that you write is completely in different worlds, do you think you have got one full-on autobiographical story? Yeah, the, I wrote a play called White Chameleon in in the early nineties, oh, which summer. which was uh, which was. Uh, Totally, my memories of Egypt. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. Uh, so it was about m my childhood, my relationship, particularly with this, our servant, who was um, an extraordinary guy, and uh, and just and a bit what we talked about earlier, how it was interesting to be a kind of outsider wherever you went. Yeah. Thank you. Thank really, really beautiful face. 
thanks very much for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed here via the bookshop, come in at Sloan Square, or on the website. Come to the theatre, come and have a look at the plays, come and have a look at the plays in the new season. The Playwrights Podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre, presented by me, Simon Stevens, and produced by Anushka Warden and Emily Legg. Thank you.